Good afternoon and welcome to today's FS Club webinar on state-sponsored sport corruption. In 2017, the release of Icarus, a documentary on doping in sport, sparked audience interest worldwide and garnered much critical acclaim. The documentary uncovered a Russian state-sponsored Olympic doping program used during the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi. Since then, there have been numerous doping scandals in sport, including the International Olympic Committee's concerns surrounding a lack of out-of-competition testing in the sport of weightlifting. And in a somewhat unique webinar here for us at FS Club, we'll be looking at the risk to sport from the interference of state actors how far, and how far they're embedded in the sport and what the implications are for clean athletes. It is my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Martin Duby, who brings a unique blend of over 30 years of law enforcement experience, combined with a decade of sports investigation experience, with applied knowledge of the latest technologies used to support integrity and help counter corruption in sport. Working with Professor Richard McLaren, Martin has been the lead investigator for major international sport inquiries, such as corruption within athletics, weightlifting and boxing. He has also undertaken the investigation of Russian state cheating at the Sochi 2014 Olympics and subsequent follow-up inquiry of data manipulation within the Moscow Laboratory. Martin has also built expertise in private sector commercial fraud and asset tracing work, combining his experience of government, global connections and the use of sophisticated technology. If you are new to our webinar series, welcome. I'm Charlotte Dobrashley and I manage the FS Club here at CN. I'd like to warmly acknowledge our very generous sponsors who enable us to continue to bring you a wide range of thought-provoking content across finance, technology, economics and even sports today. The session will be recorded and available to watch on our website within 48 hours and we'll be holding a 20-minute Q&A session after the presentation. So please use the GoToWebinar chat facility to send your questions in to me and then I'll feed them into the conversation. Now, over to you, Martin. Thank you and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Martin Dubby. Thank you for the generous introduction, Charlotte. Uh, I hope to be talking you through in the next 20, 25 minutes my experience and findings around state-sponsored fraud in sport. Uh, I will caveat that uh, a lot of my experience has been around Russian state cheating in sport, uh, but they're not the only country in my experience, and uh, only the lack of publicly available information prevents me from speaking about that. So uh, this is not a Russian bashing session, but this is really predominantly about uh, what uh, I found in the various investigations I've been involved in. It's fair to say that there is extensive evidence of nation state involvement in sport fraud, uh, ranging from small issues right the way through to some really extensive uh, cheating uh, that went on and that we identified in, uh, at the time, international athletics and world athletics. You'll see from this slide that in fact, uh, I've been involved in sport investigation since around 2015, when we investigated the uh, Russian state corruption of international athletics and now world athletics. Prior to that, I'd served as uh, investigator at various command levels within UK law enforcement. And I think uh, whilst we say nothing surprises us anymore, uh, quite surprised, and certainly I was personally quite surprised at the level of state-sponsored uh, fraud in sport when I came across it. 
So just taking a look at uh, my involvement in this, uh, since 2015, we'd have the investigation of Russian corruption of international athletics. And this was followed by uh, the investigation we launched in 2016 of Russian uh, uh, cheating at the Sochi Olympic Games. Uh, in turn, following that, uh, Russian corruption of biathlon. Uh, 2019, Russian state manipulation of the data in their own laboratory. So they'd been fixing a, the uh, information or the data analysis of uh, samples in their own laboratory. Um, and so uh, that was cause for further investigation. Ultimately, their ban uh, as a competing nation, be it their athletes or there as neutrals, from the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. Uh, over and above that, it's not all about Russians. Uh, I've been involved in uh, some high level investigations of embezzlement in weightlifting, sexual abuse in uh, Mali and corruption in boxing, yeah, uh, spanning several Olympic Games. So able to talk in context of that. And this is not about the big I am. This is really purely to qualify me to talk about the subject uh, that I'm about to and also to answer any other questions that you might have about sport involvement uh, of states uh, at the end of this presentation. So what I'm going to do now is Charlotte kindly referred to the uh, movie Icarus. And the movie Icarus was really played out of um, the uh, investigation results that we came with in 2016. And basically, the case revolved around having investigated world athletics, we then uh, named in 2015 and, and shamed the laboratory director in Moscow, a guy called Dr. Rachenkov, as being one of the principal organizers behind all this. And in 2016, Rachenkov defected to the West, and I was able to debrief him at several safe houses around the States, etc., to get the insight into what had gone on at the Sochi 2014 athletics. Uh, this was ultimately turned in part into a movie called Icarus. Icarus, uh, my friends will tell you, uh, uh, did win an Oscar for the best drama documentary of 2020. And I'm in it, but for four seconds. So uh, what I'm going to do uh, is we're going to play you a little trailer of the internet internet Netflix uh, uh, advertising of the movie, just to give you a bit of a flavor. And then I'll tell you a bit about the...
Right. Uh, I think I'm still online. Yes, we can hear you, Martin. Oh, great. Okay. Could I have the next slide up, please? So um, I hope you appreciate that rather dramatic uh, introduction by Netflix. Uh, the reality is somewhat different, of course, because you know a case like this involves really uh, in-depth uh, investigation and techniques. One of the uh, main allegations by Rodchenkov is that the Russians have developed a way to remove the bottle lids from um, uh, from the uh, tops of the urine bottles collected from the athletes. And by doing that, they were able to replace the dirty urine, inverted commas, with clean urine, uh, which may, meant that the athletes could compete under the influence of performance-enhancing drugs whilst not being caught by the, uh, by the service. Um, in the slide here, and can I just say, Charlotte, the, the PowerPoint is not showing on my screen, uh, if you could help me out there. So um, in relation to the uh, allegations, the most important thing with these type of cases is if you're investigating something with state-sponsored fraud involved, you can't just accept the word of a person. You need to look for forensics, irrefutable evidence to back up what you have to say here. And so consequently, um, in relation to uh, that, in relation to that, we said to Rachenkov, look, we have to prove what you're saying. It's not acceptable. Uh, and, as it, and as it turned out to be true, is that his word would not be accepted. We had to prove this by the fact that we had forensic evidence to support. Now, hopefully you can see the bottle on the left-hand side. Um, you'll see that's a, a typically clean bottle sealed with the lid on. And what we had to work out is how were the Russians able to get into this bottle? And what we went to was a forensic examiner in the UK and the forensic examiner was able to, under microscope, see that there were scratch marks under the lid that had been created by a object being inserted under the lid and pushing up. If you can see on the right-hand side, uh, you can see that um, uh, you've got a thin piece of metal and that's pushing up on the ring nut that locks the bottle. And the rest of that then is, is history, as it were, you're able to open up the bottle and get into it. And so, if you like, from the perspective of proving this case, we'd achieved objective one. Can we show how the bottle lids were removed? Now, it was interesting uh, that in this conversation, Rochenkov said at an early stage, I have never seen the lids removed. Uh, if we needed lids removing because they needed to be swapped, then we'd refer it to our FSB. Uh, and for those of you who know the FSB, that's the local or the, the federal state investigation service, we would refer it to them and they would do it for us. So quite significant assistance being provided there at an early stage. He was to go on and say that actually uh, there was an FSB liaison officer appointed to every single sport that was uh, of interest to the Russians. And the reason for that is to help with liaison, to help with bribes, to help with uh, various ways in which uh, Russian sport could influence that particular sport. If I could have the next slide, please. 
and you'll see here that a number of the uh, bottles are undergoing here a uh, forensic sweep. And forensic sweep here, you can see bottles inside a vacuum bag. Uh, this is a very old technique. This is um, uh, the vacuum bag is being blown up and then having super glue blown into the bag. And that blows across the bottles and settles on any fingerprints uh, that we were looking for on the bottles. Quite a good technique. Uh, and indeed, we were able to uncover a number of fingerprints, but ultimately not link them to anyone. We also asked for uh, them to be DNA to see if there was any DNA uh, on the lids. And indeed, uh, we were able to establish that. If we could go on to the next slide. And in relation to this slide, this is showing the layout of the Sochi laboratory. And the Sochi laboratory is secured by the black line. And you can see here rooms five and six. This is where the rooms uh, were divided by a secure line. And the allegation was, and you can see this uh, top right hand picture, was that there was a mouse hole cut between the two, two walls where samples could be passed between them. And in fact, what we've got here is the evidence of photographic forensic examiner who's able to say from the shadow uh, that he can see caused by uh, the white cap and sunlight coming in through the window that there is indeed a void and a hole matching on the other side in room five, uh, uh, what looks to be like a void. And so therefore you're further proving that such a hole existed where the allegation was that samples could be passed at night from room six by uh, a friendly lab assistant into room five and then handed over to Rachenkov and an FSB agent who would go off, take the lids off and come back and reinsert. If I can have the next slide, please. Charlotte, can I just confirm we've got up the mouse hole in aliquoting room 125 as the next slide? Yes, that's up right now. Great. OK, so um, what you can see here is perhaps uh, a better view of the void that we were looking at behind the cap. So during the day, this cap would be on and that cupboard that you can see to the right would be placed in front of it. So if any if there were any suspicions about what was going on, it wasn't obvious what was happening. So if you like, a very sophisticated attempt to cover up from any visiting IOC official um, as to what was happening there. Next slide, please. Now, here's an interesting thing. What Rodchenkov told us is that, um, and his, it's not a particularly nice thought, but as you're probably all aware, urine can look different colors depending on time of the day, what you've eaten, what exercise you've done, et cetera, et cetera. So if I'm gonna open the cap up and remove the contents of the old urine that's already there, the color of the clean urine that I replace it with has to match because that is something that is measured by officials. What color is it? There's a litmus test. So what Rodchenkov had to do to strengthen up clean urine that didn't look the same color. If he needed it to look darker, he would add salt 
and coffee, instant coffee, mix it all up and reseal the uh, reseal the bottle. And in the same way, if he needed to dilute it, he would just uh, simply add water to uh, lessen the uh, viscousness, shall we say, of the dirty samples. So there are a number of tactics that he worked at while sealing up the bottle. Now, if you think this might sound a bit far-fetched, I'll refer you to one of the emails that we found in the laboratory that talked about two athletes, two female athletes. And uh, he's talking, or Chenkov is talking on an off-record email system that they were using. But look at the information contained in this. On the left-hand side, you'll see a five-figure, sorry, a, a seven-digit figure, uh, 2818957 which is the sample bottle reference. And within it, the technician is saying, with the current concentration of steroids, i.e. very uh, full of steroids, it needs to be diluted two to two and a half times. This is exactly what Rachenkov said, we need to dilute it. But the other sample, 2818752, needed to be concentrated four times, which would be a mixture of coffee and salt and the technician there is saying, this is absolutely crazy. You know, how are we getting away with this? And if you like, having discovered that this was a problem in the Moscow lab, uh, sorry, in, in the Sochi lab, we now realize there was an even bigger problem going on in the Moscow lab, where samples were routinely swapped and covered up. Um, part of our findings at the Sochi Olympics was that some athletes had so much salt in their urine, it was impossible for them to be alive, let alone win a gold medal at the Olympics. We also found evidence of DNA abuse, so mixtures in the urine of male and male, female and female, male and female. Again, indicators that the so-called tamper-proof sample bottle had been in, indeed tampered with. Next slide, please. And this is a timeline when we put this together, actually, with the data lab information from Moscow and from Sochi of actually what was happening in relation to this particular scam. So from 2012 through to July 2015, we had a number of indicators along the way of this fraud, whereby they were able to access the bottles and switch out the urine, uh, was able to be perpetrated. And so uh, interestingly, you know, that's, you know, it was a shock to us at the London Olympics. Uh, the Russians were physically spying on the British lab to find out exactly what they were able to test and how far, uh, and were able to use that to their advantage in how much doping substance they gave their athletes. Now, fortunately, because of this activity, we were able to get the evidence of that. And in fact, uh, the London Olympics switched from the cleanest Olympics ever to the dirtiest Olympics ever. And I think something like 30 medals uh, awarded to Russians were withdrawn uh, from them as a result of our work. So that, if you like, is in 2012. Uh, we're now building up the history. In, in February 2013, the FSB had worked out methodology to reduce the bottle caps and so tried it out at the University Games in Russia and the Moscow Championships uh, before really fully deploying it at the Sochi Olympics. And what we had there was 28 cases of Russian athletes uh, being involved. 
Moving on from there, we worked out evidence that they maintained a urine bank. So where they did have clean samples, they were then have clean equivalent samples to swap with the um, uh, bottles that were found to be dirty by them before they officially submitted it. Uh, I'll go on, time prevents me to uh, talk in more detail about this, but this whole methodology ran to about 10th of July, 2015, uh, before it was finally decided it was too risky. And this took us right into the middle of our initial uh, investigation into international athletics. If I could take the next slide. So what were our findings? Uh, the government and FSB were embedded in every sport of interest to the Russian government. So, for example, many of you will know that Putin is a keen ice hockey fan. So clearly ice hockey is a sport of interest. Um, other sports that, you know, from a nationalistic point of view, present um, prowess of the Russian state, such as boxing or athletics, are definitely sports of interest. and. This was actually a full government tasking uh, that government agencies were tasked to support state-sponsored cheating in athletics. And this involved full-on intelligence tactics. Uh, we were to come across evidence of spying, bribes, honey traps, uh, and surveillance operations of uh, uh, sporting officials. It involves the manipulation of control and governance systems. So effectively, whenever the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, came out with a new rule that was designed to uh, protect athletes from manipulation, uh, as a team in the lab, they would sit down and discuss how they could get around it, what they could do different. Um, and so there was a continual program of countering whatever rules were introduced. Throw into this cyber attack, so hacking, coordinated trolling and bot activity. Um, again, time doesn't allow me to go fully into this, but again, it was all part of the system. Full support of state media and investigation interference. So political lobbying, legal action to try and interfere or detract uh, from the investigation. So if you like, a full range of state-sponsored uh, opportunities. Next slide, please. Lessons learned. You know, if you're ever to be involved in such an investigation, I think what I'd say is take nothing for granted. Uh, you've got to go the full investigation with this. You know, don't assume, oh, I've got a great whistleblower, therefore we're going to be okay. Uh, you can't do that. You need full forensic support and corroboration. Think about your cyber security and storage, uh, location of physical assets and exhibits, make sure they're securely held. Uh, you might want to consider as well as an organisation a crisis management strategy. So partly after this investigation uh, reported, uh, World Anti-Doping and IOC were hacked and various documents released into the public space uh, by the organisation, hacking organisation based in St. Petersburg, Fancy Bears. Uh, and that was designed to embarrass and detract and provide disinformation about the investigation. And so what you might want to have in place is a crisis management strategy to deal and counter that type of threat. Um, here's the bad news. It's not cheap. Uh, these investigations are expensive. They will employ the best lawyers. 
think about your tradecraft, think that you might be under surveillance, room bugging uh, and open to compromise as part of your investigation. And be careful, of course, you know, investigating states in whatever environment and whatever circumstances can be dangerous. And, you know, as I say, this applies to all investigations if you're taking on state organisation or body. Next slide, please. OK, so what about the future? Um, the future is new technology. Um, many sports allow now for the download of phone and laptop images and even require bank statements. You know, these are good moves forwards to help uh, investigators tackle sport crime. Uh, etc. Uh, voice risk analytics testing. This is around uh, uh, testing athletes, coaches, officials using voice analytics, um, not just in the integrity space, but also in the anti-doping space to assess what level of risk uh, they face to the organization. New technology helps, but definitely we should learn our lessons. And one of those lessons is we cannot be naive about the potential risk from state-sponsored interference in sport. We've got Paris 2024 coming up and LA 2028. Uh, I was speaking last week to someone about LA 2028 and talking about security. And their concern is about people climbing over the fence. My concern is about what are you doing to counter the risk of state-sponsored interference at the Olympic Games? Because both London and Sochi, and to some extent Rio, showed the dangers uh, that can come from state-sponsored interference. I take the next slide, please, which is really to say thank you for your time this afternoon. Um, I know there's a, a process for questions, uh, but we're not far from you. We're in the City of London. Uh, happy to speak or, or follow up on any aspect of this that might be of interest. But I'm sure you've got questions now. If we could take the questions slide to hand back to Charlotte to manage the questions and happy to answer anything that may be on your mind. Thanks very much, Martin. That was very interesting. Uh, we do have a few questions coming in. Uh, firstly, from Clive, could there be a public pledge of integrity in advance, of, in advance of events like the Olympics with huge penalties if they are breached? Yeah, I, I think that's definitely a good idea, Clive. Um, there are some sports and there is some attempts by IOC at pledges of integrity, etc. I'd like to go a little bit further and maybe some sports now have certificates of integrity where it means people have gone through a webinar um, and answer questions on integrity so they understand what they can and can't do. Um, but ultimately, you know, when it involves nation states, uh, they're potentially going to ride uh, roughshod over this. So, you know, there's a little bit of a balancing act, but um, you know, let's let's try everything. Uh, it doesn't do any harm. Yeah. Um, another question we have is um, from Hugh. What role can the sponsors play to improve this situation? So I, I think as sponsors, you should look carefully at uh, what sponsorship you may have of sporting organisations. Uh, we know definitely that IOC is uh, and other sporting organisations are very sensitive about their sponsorship. And so therefore, if the sponsors were to say, this is what we want as a result of our sponsorship, that's going to be a great way of driving 
uh, integrity su support into the sports, maybe some form of integrity testing, outside audit, that sort of thing. But in my view, for change at the top level, it's got to be where the money is, where the sponsors are, where the TV companies are, uh, et cetera, et cetera, to insist on certain uh, oversight and audit based on, you know, the past. Uh, I won't include Tokyo on this, uh, although there were some corruption allegations in relation to the um, preparation of contracts and things like that. But the previous uh, Olympics were, you know, all questionable in terms of ethics and nation state involvement. So I think it's incumbent on the sponsorship companies uh, and TV companies to look closely at this question. No, that's fair Thank enough. You. Um, Ewan Grant, I think he's saying that he's a former law enforcement intelligence analyst who used the East German female swimmers example in the 1990s training courses. Which official government agencies and international law enforcement agencies have approached you for tips and ideas and which have not? Okay, uh, well, good afternoon, Ewan. Yes, we know each other well, so uh, good to hear from you. Um, in relation to uh, to this, um, look, of course, we've spoken closely with World Anti-Doping Agency, with International Testing Agency, um, and also, to some extent, IOC uh, have been involved in that process as well. I think uh, my concern is that we're back to a bit of head in the sand, that because people think this incident has been dealt with and in the past and everything like that, the infiltration of an Olympic Games couldn't happen again. Um, and my argument would be on the contrary. You know, the stakes are getting higher. The need for uh, impressing uh, your, your, um, uh, your, your population with more medals. You know, this is what it's all about. It's a, a nationalistic desire to present your country as the best, to win the most medals, means that more and more countries uh, look to this as an opportune moment uh, to get involved. And in fact, to some extent, there's a creeping problem, dare I say, of high net worth individuals, uh, some might call them oligarchs, uh, being prepared to sponsor um, uh, activity to push their athletes onward and into the medal zone. So there's a, there's a potential growing problem, not just from state-sponsored, the state-sponsored situation. In relation to uh, law enforcement, I think you know, potentially uh, the national police forces of both France and US should be looking at some of the lessons learned from these uh, games. I, I think as well, you'll know those international bodies, Interpol, Europol, that do look at sport integrity. Uh, but I think conversation with them is at an early, early stage. Thank you, Charlotte. Marcus um, has asked how you feel about the Russian and Belarusian athletes competing as neutrals in the Olympics in Paris 2024, given the state-sponsored doping by Russia. Uh, yes, I thought this question might occur. <laughs> um, there's two issues here. Obviously, the question mark over their attendance in Paris is also linked to the crisis in Ukraine. Uh, we have to acknowledge that. Um, but also, if I was to take that out of the situation, it's difficult to do so. I accept that. But if I was to look at it purely from a doping perspective, you know, now they have served their punishment. Uh, there's still some ongoing issues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, IOC will decree 
when the best time is for them to reappear in sport. So um, it's kind of a political one out of my hands. And moving to uh, football now, Clive has said, shouldn't all sports have some financial limits on their spending? In football's Premier League, the teams at the top are successful due to money, so the competition element has declined heavily. He's saying it's highly unlikely a team other than the top six will ever win unless they get a massive input of money, such as that from a state. Um. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting one, Clive. <laughs> Thanks for that. I, I'm a little bit out of my comfort zone because salary cap issues and things like that are not something that I've been immediately involved in, although we have been involved in some sal salary cap investigations as a company. Um, my, my thought is that, you know, wherever there's money, there's always the potential for uh, corruption, bad behaviour and that sort of thing. So if, if these clubs are allowed to... Uh, uh, increased spending, then caps that are in, imposed, etc. We should have an audit audit uh, position that we can go and check this independently without it being self-policed, etc., uh, etc. Et and I go back to the point of the pressure for that comes from the advertising companies and the TV companies to make sure that things are fair and balanced. Thank you. Uh, Ewan has asked again, who's showing awareness of the possibilities of states taking journalists or investigators hostage to deter inquiries? Think Ivan Gerskovich in Moscow. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting one because, you know, from, a, uh, from an investigator perspective, you do have to risk assess uh, where you've been and what you're doing and where you're going. Um, the situation in Russia is, is uh, pretty unique right now, and I would suggest uh, probably dangerous for any sports investigator to get stuck into any allegations or anything like that. And obviously, we're acutely aware of um, the potential hostage um, uh, political implications of, uh, you know, keeping investigative journalists uh, under arrest, etc., in relation to the sport investigations, you know, at the moment, uh, to my knowledge, uh, there are no active sport investigations in Russia. But then, you know, at, at the end of the day, you can never be too careful. So, um, as I say, at the start of this uh, presentation, you know, it's not just Russia. You know, mm -hmm. I am, I, I've been talking about Russia from the perspective of this is what we have specific open public source available information we can talk about now. Um, but there are other government bodies where I would suggest you need to carefully risk assess where you're going and, and where you're, you're, you're uh, poking around, uh, to quote some investigative journalists. Can you mention um, any of the other countries that are conducting this sort of corrupt behaviour? Um, unfortunately not, because obviously uh, this is information that's come to me either sensitively or in confidence. So I can't do it except to say uh, Russia's not the only ones. Would you say um, there's potentially a correlation between state-sponsored doping programs and countries with heavily centralised governments, like um, in the past, East Germany, Russia, North Korea? Uh, yes. 
yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. Um, that type of government regime does allow for systematic um, programs to counter anti-doping programs. Those type of countries, and I say those type of, I don't want to stereotype here, those type of countries generally benefit from, uh, uh, you know, impressing their population with a high haul of medals, et cetera, that things are going well, et cetera. So again, you know, it's guidance and advice, but if you have sport investigations there and certainly privately, I'd be happy to advise if anyone was thinking of that, um, that uh, you should fully risk assess what you're doing. And um, Lou um, Zhao Chen uh, was caught last year by the International Testing Agency conducting an out-of-competition test without prior warning. Is this sort of method the only really reliable form of catching this sort of behaviour out? Because it seems like it would be quite prohibitive um, and expensive to roll out. Well, it's a standard practice. It's called uh, out-of-competition testing. And athletes have to give their whereabouts information so that they can be contacted at random to uh, undertake uh, a urine or blood test in relation to whether they're taking uh, drugs at all. Obviously, when they're out of competition, so this differs from when they're in competition, when they might expect to be uh, tested. And indeed, if they podium, they will almost certainly be tested, that they know that they can't test in competition. So there would be a trend, if you like, or a tendency to dope out of competition. And that's when this particular athlete got caught. Um, what that means is it's quite intrusive. Testers go to your house or wherever you said you're going to be, knock on the door at whatever time of day it's going to be, and insist you take a urine test there and then. Um, and, you know, it's not, it's not pleasant. You know, you have to strip down. Uh, from your chest downwards and uh, pass a sample in front of a complete stranger. Um, but this is the extent we've gone to uh, capture drug, drug cheats. We're now in a position that we think there are some intelligence-led new methods uh, involving voice risk analysis where we can perhaps uh, sort out uh, and find the needles in the haystack of drug cheats by using voice analysis to assess if uh, an athlete is taking drugs or indeed has taken drugs maybe in the past year. Uh, but that's still the challenge is still catching them effectively red-handed. Different types of drugs last different amounts of time in the body um, and uh, there's still plenty of places to hide. Uh, unfortunately, as always, it's a few bad apples that ruin it for the rest. Yeah, it just seems, I guess, that that's something that the, you know, innocent fear athletes have to put up with so we, we know everything yeah but not not yeah. ideal I, I think with voice risk analysis we'll be able to say or assess who the innocent athletes are uh, and be able to focus on those that perhaps present more of a problem to the organizations in terms of their likely propensity for uh, doping but you know time or time will tell on that now, another question um, from Marcus. Do you feel that some um, sports washing by certain countries could be considered as corruption? So being the rationale that it elevates and promotes these countries to their internal population, um, a slightly more tenacious link to state-sponsored doping, but with the same goal. 
Uh, yeah, abs absolutely. It's it's corrupt. It's fraud, uh, in my opinion. Um, I think that um, you know, if if it's caught, it's usually the athletes that suffer, but not so much the coaches or the officials behind it. And it's difficult to take action against officials in the sport context, apart from banning them for certain periods of time, which frankly, uh, in some states is just laughed off. Or, you know, the counter position is this is just a stitch up. Uh, you're just picking on us or whatever. You know, I go back to the point is we've got to be very careful about being evidence led here and certainly forensic led in terms of proving, improving our case. So in terms of uh, uh, countries that are inclined to do this, no, it is outright fraud and you're defrauding good, clean athletes that do want to participate in this. And I think at the moment, you know, there's because of the rules, because of what's come in and what's been opposed to try and catch drug cheats, it means that everyone falls under the same brush and there's no attempt to reward uh, athletes that have a good record of compliance uh, and support of the system. They're still having to declare their whereabouts. They're still having to submit to this rather humiliating test. But people tell me they get used to it. I don't see that. Um, but it, you know, it, it embraces all of them at the moment. It's interesting um, that you mentioned that the punishment doesn't quite transfer to officials and coaches who may also be involved. So that's I find that surprising. But we're um, about yeah. out of time now. Uh, but that's been a really interesting um, webinar today. So thank you so much for sharing your time and experience with us, Martin. Um, and also thanks again to our sponsors for making these webinars possible. And of course, uh, to the audience for logging in and asking your questions and contributing to the discussion today. Don't forget to check out our website uh, for other forthcoming events and wishing you a great week. Thanks everyone. And thanks again, Martin. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye.